Good morning. I think we will start. We will be in Deuteronomy 4 this morning, but before we get there, open up with prayer. Are there any prayer requests out there? Okay, then I will pray for us and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, you are a good God. We thank you for the grace that you have extended to us. We thank you most of all for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life before you. You are the God who takes care of us at every moment of every day. We pray now that you would take care uh, for Claire and her neck. We ask that you would relieve her and give her mobility and decrease of pain. Uh, we pray for her health more broadly as she uh, continues to grow this child. We pray for your blessing over her and the child's health. We ask you, Father, as we gather here this morning, that you would give us understanding, that you would open our ears and our hearts to your word, and we pray that we would be transformed by this text that we read this morning. We pray that you would speak, that we might hear, that we might live, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to Deuteronomy 4 this morning. We breached that chapter last week having finished chapter 3 and a very, very brief overview. Chapter 1 to 3 in Deuteronomy is Moses thinking about Israel's past. So Israel came out of Egypt, but he doesn't even mention that. He really starts with Israel's past at Mount Sinai, where they get the Ten Commandments, and then he walks forward until they are at the present, where they are on the plains of Kadesh waiting to cross over into the Jordan, and the last order of business to take care of before Israel can cross the river into the land of Canaan is Moses has to die. And before he does that, he sets his house in order. And what we come to in Deuteronomy is Moses setting everything right, kind of speaking to his family or his flock at the last moment here and encouraging them on in the way of faith. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1, Moses begins uh, his exhortation, or he begins to uh, try to motivate the Israelites into action based on what they have heard. So God has done this. What is Israel's response to God supposed to be? Here it is, Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Last week we dealt briefly with the privilege it is for Israel to listen and the obligation it is for Israel to listen. We'll expand on those themes a little bit this morning, but let's move on a little bit in the chapter to verse 2. What is it that Israel is supposed to listen to? You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So I mentioned uh, briefly last week, listening begins with what the Lord has done. That's what Moses has done in chapters 1 to 3. Then it moves on. Moses says, chapter 4, verse 1, listen to the statutes and rules. 
So God not only works salvation, he alone interprets his redemptive acts, which we've seen in chapters 1 to 3. And then the statutes and the rules, if you have a different translation, it may be something like statutes and judgments, some of you may have. But that is the proper response to God's work of salvation. If we are not interested in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, we might as well put the book away. If we don't care for God's great works of salvation, we won't care to pay attention to what the response to that salvation is supposed to be. So if we're not captivated by God's work, we won't pay attention to his words. So let us make sure that we are captivated by his work, first of all, and then perhaps we will be moved to pay attention to what his words, his statutes and rules might be. One of the big mistakes that go the other way, though, is it's very easy for people to be all excited about what God has done. He saved me from my sins, how wonderful, but then presume upon that salvation and say, that will be there for me no matter what it is I do. But Moses doesn't let us do that either. He starts with God's work, and then he moves on to the words, which is, God has saved you, Now, therefore, be very careful to pay attention to these statutes and rules. And why should they do that? That goes on in verse 1. That you may live. So there are three things that come out of listening. Life, entrance into the promised land, and possession of the reward. Those are the three things that result from listening. And if we don't listen... Those three things, life, entrance into the promised land, and the reward of the land will not be given either. So Moses looks to the past, says, therefore, listen, and listen particularly to these statues and rules. And then verse three, you sh- or verse two, excuse me, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. So all and only these words are important for life with God. And notice here, at the end, I'll just make a a mention of this. End of verse 1. It's not quite the middle of verse 1. Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them. So Moses is teaching them something that they ought to do. And in verse 2, I do not add to the word, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. So doing and keeping are two major themes that come up throughout Deuteronomy over and over and over again. And we'll see it as we continue to go through here. But I want to draw your attention one more time to this very first commandment, listen. Uh, Listen is uh, giving attention to or hearing with intention is maybe another way to say it. Uh, We sometimes think of listening as a passive activity. For those of you who just sat through an hour of listening and are here to sit through almost another hour of it, you know listening takes work. Uh, And it's easy to nod off and kind of grow slack in the work, right? Listening is a hard thing to do. It requires effort. And sometimes it requires more effort than others. So we are to listen to what is happening, pay attention, give ear to, uh, be intentional about hearing what's going on, but it is also the first step of obedience. To listen is a command. 
But listening is the first step in the series of acts of obedience. So we might say listening is the first act in the activity of obedience. Listening is a command. But listening to other commands that are to be done as well. So another way we can approach it is this. Listening in Hebrew has the same range of meaning that the English word listening has. For example, how many of you were ever told by one of your parents, listen to what I'm telling you, right? Listening to what I'm telling you doesn't only mean listen to the sound of my voice and hear my words. It means obey what I am about to tell you. The listening is the first step, so hearing what's being said, but then it is also the act of obedience that follows that. So listening to these words, but then obeying the direction those words go. So when my dad said listen, he didn't simply mean hear what I'm saying. He meant listen and obey what I am about to tell you. I'm going to give you further instructions. Now we often say that our lack of obedience is not a result of lacking knowledge. Uh, We don't fail in our knowledge. We fail in our resolve. So how many times have Christians heard it said, we don't need to hear more, we need to be better at obeying? Moses, by implication, with his first commandment of listen, would say that our lack of obedience is first a result of our lis- a lack of our listening. We fail to listen, therefore we fail to do. There are other prophets who follow in that train as well. Isaiah 5, verse 3, says our problem in our obedience is fundamentally a lack of knowledge. Isaiah 5, verse 13, Therefore my people go into exile... For lack of knowledge, their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Lack of knowledge was the reason for Israel's exile. Hosea 4.6, another passage that is on the mark. Find the little book, Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Good tie into this morning's sermon. Lack of knowledge, lack of remembrance, those things go hand in hand. Paul will say something very similar. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that All of us possess knowledge. That's taking almost direct aim at, it's not that I need more knowledge, it's that I need a stronger will. He's taking direct aim at that. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So that little phrase there, if he knows, if he thinks he, imagine he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. There are different ways in which we can know something. To know what the Lord has said but to do nothing with it is to have a defective form of knowledge. And Moses is warning against that when he says, listen. Listen to what I am about to tell you. If there is a fault in our doing, it's because there is first a fault in our listening. That's where it always begins. Moses moves on to a little case study here in verses 3 to 4 to show that exact point. So verses 3 and 4, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. Those who did not obey the commandments were destroyed. Verse 3, your eyes saw what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you. What is kind of fascinating is that word destroyed is used repeatedly throughout Deuteronomy, but it's always used of pagan nations, those people who didn't listen or follow or obey the commands of the Lord. And incidentally, every time the Lord has destroyed another nation, he did it on behalf of another pagan nation. What happens to Israel in the exile? Israel acting as a pagan nation, is destroyed by, or we might even say for the advantage of, another pagan nation. So what Moses is warning here against is if you forget what the Lord has said, you will be destroyed just like all of those who don't even have the words of the Lord. But the ante is upped a little bit for them. We might say this then, having the word saves no one. Having the word saves no one. Listening saves because it should lead to keeping and doing. Uh, Described as clinging or holding fast to in verse 4. You who held fast to the Lord are alive today. So one more time. The end of... Let's let's read verse 4 real quick. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. So here there is a relationship between listening and the doing, which is supposed to be the result, right? So listen to the statutes and rules that I'm giving you and do them, verse 1. And then verse 4, you who held fast to the Lord your God, which is doing, those of you who did, are all alive today. And remember, back in verse 1, those who receive that teaching and do that teaching, do it so that you may live. So what the Lord is after here is life. Remember, the Lord is not the God of the dead. He's God of the living. And he reigns over the living by commanding them words. They do those words and they live as a result of those words. One thing I'll, I'll just mention here as... As 21st century scientific folk, we like to imagine that life is kind of on or off, right? The switch is on or it's off, pull the plug or you don't need the plug. 
there's, there's very little ambiguity in terms of what life is. That's not quite the way the ancient Near East or Moses, and I would actually argue John or Jesus quite thinks about it, right? So John and John 6.68, I have come so that they may have, may have life and have it abundantly. Why mention that little word abundantly? Well, it's because generally speaking, the idea is there is such a thing as a depletion of life while one still has life. One can have more or less life. And by the way, that is one of the most helpful things to hold on to when you're reading the Old Testament. When people lost blood, they lost life. And so it's inappropriate to mix life-giving things with that depletion of life. That will help you read something like Leviticus 15. If you're not sure what that text is about, feel free to look it up afterwards. Um, But the Lord is the Lord of life. He is after life. Pursue life. And if you want to have more life, if you want wholeness and vitality of life, if you want to live well, we follow the commandments of the Lord. Now, just for a little bit of practical application here, I'll, I'll pause here for a second. Do you think that we might approach, say, sermons or Sunday school classes or Bible studies uh, or uh, any of those uh, sorts of things where the Bible is the primary tool, do you think we would approach them differently if we thought, I'm going there to receive words of life. I will live better as a result of this time. Right? So, so perhaps one encouragement for you. If you are walking through the Bible with someone else, there is never a wasted hour, no matter how small the steps may seem. They're life-giving words, if they are Bible words. Words meant to give life. And if you are trying to pour into your children or someone else, there is never a wasted hour in teaching those words. They might seem to not produce the life that we would hope for right away, but there is never a wasted moment in the Bible. Not only that, one more little bit of encouragement, listening is an unnatural activity. Moses has to command these people, listen. Parents know that, right? Obedience is not something that comes natural. We we know that as Christians. Obedience is not something that comes natural. Moses has to command listening, and he has to have that be the first of all the series of commands that he's about to give. The first thing Israel is to do in response to what God has done is listen. Listen to what the Lord has said. So, all of that to say, listening is for our good. It will result in our life if we listen the way we ought to listen so that we might know the way we ought to know, using Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 8. Last, we'll look at verse 5, and then we'll take a, a brief pause. Verse 5. So if, if the first four verses were obedience to Torah results in blessing, this is obedience to Torah is an obligation. Verse 5. See... I have taught you, or I am teaching you, statutes and rules or judgments as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
So because of the relationship between listening and life that we've seen twice in verses 1 to 4, Moses tells his audience again to pay attention, and he uses the word see. It's as if he's calling on his audience to use all of their faculties, right? So you use your ears and you use your eyes. Pay attention. And what they're supposed to pay attention to is what Moses is doing. See, I am teaching you statutes and rules as has been commanded me. Now here there is an alteration that's kind of difficult to catch. It's subtle, but it's an important one. In verse 1, Moses says, Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you. In verse 2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you. And then down here in verse 5, see, I am teaching you. And so here we have a little bit of a pattern developed. There is, I am teaching you, I am commanding you, I am commanding you, I am teaching you. And he leaves that, he, he lets that pattern sit for just a minute. Now Moses is Israel's teacher par excellence. There is no teacher better than Moses, right? Everyone else hearkens back to Moses. Moses considers himself to be a teacher. In fact, the only name that Moses ever gives for his office is prophet. Two times in Deuteronomy, he will call himself a prophet, but always in referencing the greater prophet, right? There will be a prophet like me, who the Lord will raise up among you. Uh, Listen to him. So Moses calls himself a prophet, But what he sees himself doing here primarily is teaching Israel these statutes and rules. Moses is not the source of those statutes and rules. He is a prophet through whom those statutes and rules come. In fact, John 1, very helpful on this score as well. John says the same thing. John 1, verse 16, For the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses. Uh, Important that we not understand that as the law was given by Moses as if he was the authority who gave it. What's really interesting is that when Moses says, I am teaching you the statutes and rules that they should not add to the word or take from it, Moses is not basing his authority upon his own teaching office. He is basing his authority on these words being the words of the Lord. So, verse 1, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you. Why should the Israelites pay attention to Moses' teaching? Verse 5 tells us why when he says the same thing. See, I am teaching you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. They're also referred to as the commandments of the Lord in verse 2. Moses is not the source of the commandments, the statutes, or the rules He is the one through whom they came. Now, when I was younger, it was not an infrequent occasion 
that my older brother would come to me and say, you know, mom and dad said to do this, so let's do this. My brother had no authority, at least I was told, my brother had no authority in and of, his, in and of himself, right? But when he told me, mom and dad said, whatever it is that they said, he came with their authority, not simply his own. And so though my brother is the one who gave me the commandment, simply because I heard the commandment and I knew it came from my parents' authority, I was obligated to obey what he said. That's not how it worked in my mind as a kid. And what really, I I always looked for fault somehow so that I could ignore what he said. Unfortunately, he was pretty faithful. But that is exactly how it works, right? My brother's authority wasn't his authority. It was the authority that he carried from my parents. And not because they sent him as the ambassador. It's simply because he said what they said. And their words carried the authority. And so Moses, in teaching God's will and judgments, Moses is commanding the people. To, command, to teach is to command when what is being taught are the commandments. Think about how that would revitalize how we think about sermons and preaching. If what is being taught and communicate, communicated are the commandments of the Lord, the preacher has no authority in himself. All he has are the words that the Lord gave. And we don't deal with the preacher when we obey or disobey what the preacher said. We deal with the Lord insofar as the preacher is faithful to it. So one, uh, one more step here. Statutes and judgments. How many of you have judgments? Just by a show of hand in your text. I'm going to guess you have NASB or KJV. Some head nods. Yeah. Judgments is good. I like judgments. Not because I'm opposed to the word rules. I think it's a little bit misleading. Statutes are what we would think of as prescribed law, uh, inscribed. So the Ten Commandments were inscribed on tablets. Good example of what we might call statutes. The other word is most commonly translated judgments. It's usually given, or often given, as legal decisions that are dispensed by a court. So a court takes a case, says here's what the righteous judgment is and it gives the verdict that is what the second word here is statutes and judgments together they form the guide for righteous living Moses is saying I am giving you the way of righteous living incidentally Moses will begin with the ten commandments in chapter five so when he starts giving what these commandments what these statutes and judgments are he begins with what are essentially the statutes, the laws inscribed on the Ten Commandments. So Moses teaches them, and it imposes on his hearers an obligation to hear and to do. John Frame, probably one of my favorite theologians, uh, he says that whenever God's words are spoken, they impose on their hearers an obligation to obey. If they're not obeyed, it is the Lord we have to do with. Any questions or comments through the first five verses of chapter 4? We used to say, you guys have to do and start. 
Yep. I didn't. I, I probably wasn't clever enough to do it. And uh, he, he was of imposing size, and so I didn't try either. He still is of imposing size. Okay. All right, verses 6 to 8. So we've dealt with the obligation of the law. Here's the privilege of the law. Verses 6 to 8. Keep them, that is the statutes and judgments, summarized as commandments. Keep them and do them. There are those two things again. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? First thing I'm going to draw out is there are three times this text emphasizes greatness in the mouth of foreign peoples. Verse 6, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What makes them great in the eyes of the nations is their wisdom and understanding. They are great, not because they're militarily great or economically great. They're great because they are wise and understanding. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The second element of their greatness is located in the fact that God is near them. Their God is not a God who is distant. In fact, uh, the Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel is a great example. Where is your God? Is he sleeping? Is he out relieving himself? Is he not near you to hear what you call when you call upon him? Um, they, they sought for greatness, but their gods were distant, and so were of very little help. Israel's God is not like that. Israel's God is near, so near, that when his people cry out to him, he responds to them. Their greatness is found in the fact that the presence of the Lord is with them. Uh, Joseph is another great illustration of that element of it, right? Potiphar noted, oh, everything Joseph does prospers in his hands because the Lord is with him. And so he actually found the presence of the Lord being with Joseph, the reason that Joseph was a great man. And it's going to be the same thing for the people if they keep and do. Third thing, verse 8, what great nation is there that has Statutes and rules so righteous. So here again, it is found in the body of laws. Other nations, of course, have bodies of laws. Every nation has had bodies of laws. Whether they were written or not is irrelevant. But what makes these bodies of statutes and judgments different is their purity of righteousness. That is unique. There is something right about those laws that is right in a way that's not self-interested like most of the other laws are. One of my favorite lines from the movie Aladdin, 
You've heard of the golden rule, haven't you? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. That is how laws are written. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And so there is an interest laden inside those rules that is designed to give those who write the rules an advantage. They're always that way. But the Lord gave these rules. He's not after his own advantage. He's after the life of his people. And more than that, the life of his people so that they may carry it out to the other nations. This whole section is, you will be a light to the nations if you keep and do these things. And so Moses, uh, notice the rhetorical effect that Moses has here, the rhetorical method he uses in verse 6. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear these statutes will say, And so Moses puts these words in the mouth of foreign nations simply to show by keeping and doing, you are exactly what the Lord promised Abraham would be. You are a great nation. Great for your wisdom, great for your Lord's presence with you, and great for the righteous bodies of rules that you have. That's greatness. And everything else will follow in its wake. Israel had a window of this, not, not so much the substance of it, I don't think, but a window of this with Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. But notice it wasn't just a king who was supposed to embody this. This was the people, right? Moses is transferring this to all of them. Keep this and do this, and that will be your wisdom. Now, real briefly here, if this seems contrary to our experience, there may be a few things to consider. First, this was written to Israel millennia ago. Uh, when, or maybe better, if they would have lived this, it would have actually happened. And again, Solomon is that window, so the nations really did take notice when one individual of Israel's company did this. You know, king, so it was maybe a, an unfair advantage he had, but nevertheless, other nations did take notice. In our age, are you, so there's a a leadership conference that is, is put on uh, formerly by Willow Creek and Bill Hybels, and he would bring in all sorts of different CEOs and executives of big businesses, and it didn't matter if they were Christians or not. But it is interesting that all of the best wisdom that they had to dispense and all of the books that they wrote were founded on Christian principles. The heartbreaking reality of that, though, is that very few of them recognized that what they were talking about already had precedent in what Moses said. I attribute that failure on that failure of their understanding on the silence of the church. Does the church embody the wisdom and the righteousness that Moses advocates for in Deuteronomy? If the church did, perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps one of the reasons what Moses says will happen by the foreigners who see the way of life of God's people, perhaps one of the reasons our experience seems contradictory to that is because like the Israelites, we fail to keep and do. By and large, we fail to keep and do. Not only that, but many people who do recognize the wisdom of Christianity, we'll just call it, uh, many of them who do recognize that wisdom reject in following it because of moral inability and perversion. Uh, they don't want to go that way. They think there's life in a different path. 
Moses says, there is no life in another path. This is the path of life. Uh, but they reject it because of their own uh, misunderstanding and their own folly. So all of that to say, uh, consider again verses 7 and 8. What great nation is there who has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law or Torah that I set before you today? Having the commandments should be no burden. It should be an advantage. We ought to approach them that way. And we ought to approach listening to them that way. This is for our advantage. Uh, that we may grow into life. And this is our privilege to do so. And if we fail to do what is spoken, uh, we only do it to our own harm. Uh, we are obligated to obey life-giving commandments. Isn't that a bummer? But that's, that's what Moses directs them to. Thoughts or questions over that? Okay. If you didn't get to hear Becky, uh, she just pointed out that uh, she has come, uh, she's struggled with uh, unbelieving loved ones and their, their death. She says she noticed throughout scripture how often righteousness and judgment are, are paired together in the text. It's a good observation. Okay. Take one more step forward. Moses exhorts Israel to keep herself for her own advantage. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. Truth be told, I translate that just a little bit different. Only keep yourself for yourself and keep your soul diligently. And this is what Randy mentioned this morning by way of opening to his sermon. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So they are to remember, for their own advantage, what they have seen God do. Again, Deuteronomy 1-3. to And they are not to let those things that they have seen God do no longer make an impact on their heart. They are supposed to keep them near and dear and reflect on them so that the effect that those things have doesn't wane in its power. To keep in Deuteronomy, so again, keeping and doing are often paired together. To keep in Deuteronomy is to guard or protect most of the time. It's distinct from doing, but it's inseparable from doing, right? So just like listening is we might call it the first act in the activity of obedience keeping or guarding or protecting the commandments is the first step in in being able to do the rest that follow in their wake which is why i think keeping and listening are often so are so often held together 
And so just in uh, verses, in verse 6 here, keep them and do them. Guard the statutes and rules. Do not let them leave your attention so that you might do them. Do them also. So guard them, hold them as precious, and live by them. And that is their advantage. Likely, one of the ways they are to keep their souls in the things the Lord has done and in the words of the Lord, moving on in verse 9, why they are to do it so they don't forget and so they don't fail to do, make them known to your children and to your children's children. So they themselves are to teach. And the primary reference of what they are to teach their children comes in verse 10. So what are they not to forget? What are they supposed to keep near to their heart? And what is it they are supposed to teach their children? That comes in verse 10 and following. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them, I hope some of you have, I may make them hear my words, because that's... The, the verb is cause them to hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children to do so. So jumping back to verse 10 real quick. There are four things that the Lord directs Moses to do and it becomes Moses' pattern. The Lord tells Moses, gather the people that they may hear the words of the Lord. So gather the people, cause them to hear, in order that they might learn to fear me all the days, and then ultimately that they may teach their children. So gathering, hearing, fearing, and teaching. That's Moses' pattern, and hopefully it is roughly the church's pattern. Gather, hear, fear, and teach. Comes directly from the Lord's commandments to Moses. It's exactly what Moses does. Assembling is primarily for the purpose of listening to God's word with hopefully two results. That we might learn to fear and that we might teach children. We're running low on time, but boy, the applications we could put to that in a church setting. Moses continues his historical reflection just a little bit here in verse 11 and 12. We kind of read it, but uh, let's go to it again. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. So all of this is still what Israel is supposed to be teaching their children Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Moses builds up to verse 12, where he says, You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. This is the 
historical reality that lays the foundation for so much theology throughout the Old Testament in particular, but especially Deuteronomy. The fact that they saw no form, but they heard the voice of words, or the sound of words. There was one-way communication between the Lord and his people. The Lord spoke, the people heard. What was spoken correlates in verse 13 to the Ten Commandments. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments, I would change that to ten words. Commandments never appears in the text. Commandments has its own word. This is the word for words. He commanded you his ten words. And there are two more commandments then in verse 13 that the Lord engaged in. He, com- he declared to you his covenant, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And then he commands Moses to teach. Verse 14, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. That's the foundation for the book of Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy? Because Moses was commanded to teach statutes and rules. So here he is teaching statutes and rules, which are the outworking implications of the Ten Commandments. Almost everything that follows from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 29 implications of those ten words, the Ten Commandments that the Lord gave at Sinai. Now, real quickly, why focus? Why am I giving focus to ten words instead of ten commandments? Um, there, there is a significance to this. Moses was scrupulous with the words that he used. That's what our view of Scripture is, right? Um, the Holy Spirit superintended the individual words that are used. I draw attention to ten words because Deuteronomy is not primarily a law book. If we approach Exodus 20 and following, which is the book of the covenant often called, if we come to Leviticus or we come to Numbers or we come to Deuteronomy and we view it primarily as a law book, we will do ourselves as much harm as we will good. Or we maybe a better way to say it is we would really limit the amount of good that we will get from it. And here's an analogy. An inexperienced mechanic can read an instruction manual for how to rebuild a Ford 429 engine, and he can do it. I was an inexperienced mechanic who rebuilt a Ford 351 modified looking at an instruction manual. It was the first engine I ever redid, and I did it simply following what the instruction manual told me to do. Do this, then do this, then do this, then do this, then do this, and target to this spec and make sure that the feeler gauges are here and all, all the little technicalities of it. However, an experienced mechanic can use the same manual that I use and rebuild a whole host of different kinds of engines because he's able to see the application is set in the manual for this motor, but the same principles apply to all of these other motors over here. Of course, they may have their own specs, but usually those are given in general form in the back of the book. And so an inexperienced mechanic comes to an instruction manual as if it is a law book and don't transgress anything. But an experienced mechanic knows, yeah, 
Yeah, there's fudge room. An experienced mechanic comes to an instruction manual is exactly that. It's instruction that you can apply in a whole host of different settings. When we come to Deuteronomy, we're not looking at the narrowly defined law book. We are looking at the instruction manual that is to be applied in a whole host of different circumstances. That's what Deuteronomy calls for. That's why it's ten words instead of merely ten commandments. Because they're not limited in the scope of their application. They are as broad as the circumstances of life. The ten words draw out that reality. They're ten words meant to be applied in all of these different settings. Which also, I think, is why Moses emphasizes statutes and judgments. Those judgments set precedent, just like in our own courts, right? Our Supreme Court will set a precedent, and that precedent is usually harkened back to in later judgments that are of varying application. Same thing here as well. Not only that, but it's focusing more on the fact that God met his people primarily through hearing words. Moses emphasizes you saw no form. He gave you words. And the other benefit to saying words instead of commandments, he references what we call the Ten Commandments. But by calling them the Ten Words, Moses is including in that all of his teaching being bound up in the authority of those ten words. So there are words there, and that's how you know that, and that's, that's how you met God. Another way to think of it is this way. Moses tells them, teach your children what you saw. What did we see? We saw really cool things on the top of a mountain. with more detail. Why is that important? All of the physical phenomena showed Israel that it was really God who was speaking to them. How are they to know who was giving them the words if they didn't have the, the extra cool physical things going on? But what they are to emphasize is we didn't see any form of God. We only heard words. We might say Israel's only direct experience of the Lord was the voice. They were not in the cloud. They were not physically connected to the physical phenomena. They saw it at a distance. All of that stuff happened on the top of the mountain. Israel couldn't even set foot on the base of the mountain unless they'd be executed. So what they saw was at a distance. What they heard was immediate. They heard. That was their experience of the Lord. Their experience of God and his presence was the fact of the words that were communicated. Not just the ten words, but everything else that Moses brought down from the mountain with him. All of the statutes and all of the judgments. Their experience of the Lord was an experience of hearing words. Let's go back real quick to verses 7 and 8. Think of that again. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What does it look like for the Lord to be near a people? First, they have righteous statutes and rules. They have words. The second thing is those words are lived well. 
wisdom and understanding. Back in verse 6. The nearness of the Lord is the nearness of words. It's not the form. It's why there's no idols that are acceptable. It's the words. And the hearing of those words. Now one more way I'll try and draw this out is verse 10. We're going to go to verse 10. Moses says, The day which you stood before Yahweh your God in Horeb, when Yahweh said to me, Gather to me the people that I may make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days which they are living upon the ground, and they might teach their sons. Verse 11, Then you drew near. In verse 10, the you stood before the Lord is singular. English doesn't bear it out, obviously. You, as a people, a singular entity, all of you as one group, stood before the Lord. Now remember, Moses is speaking not to the Exodus generation who was at Sinai. He's speaking to their children. No doubt, there were some children who were 16, 17, maybe even 18 years old at Sinai, who are still alive now. So there would have likely been some of them. But Moses includes all of their children in that singular you. Moses says to those who are not there, you stood before Sinai. You saw all of these great sights. And in fact, in verse 11, the that everyone else is included is drawn out. He says, then you drew near. That you is plural, as if every individual who Moses is speaking to was part of that group in verse 10 who saw who, who was there at Horeb. So you as a group were there. Then he says, y'all drew near. All of you drew near. So he has it both as a singular and as a plural to simply draw this point out. Those of you who are not there are held accountable as if you were there. Why does Moses do that? Well, first there's uh, a cultural phenomenon. First they were geared more towards group identity than individual identity. But more importantly, there's something theological going on there. By virtue of their heritage, and more than that, by virtue of hearing Moses' words they receive what their predecessors received, what their parents received. If our experience of God is connected to the word of God, every generation who receives the word of God is accountable for the events that have been experienced beforehand. Which is to say, when we come to Deuteronomy and we read what Israel experienced, and more importantly, we hear what Israel heard, All of the obligation that was set upon that first generation rests upon us because we've heard the same thing. The same obligation rests upon us as it rested upon them because it is the Lord speaking through those words and that's that's what everything rests on. There was no form. There was words. And it's those words that we are to pay attention to. Then, of course... Going back to verse 1 and closing here, the exhortation is listen. Listen to those words. And that's a command that simply sets, uh, therefore, Israel, originally, 
Israel throughout the ages and the rest of the church as well. We're brought up into that listen as well as we hear the exact same words. Thoughts or questions over all of that? I'll take rebuttals afterwards. All right, we're at time. Hope to see you next week.